God, it's nice to see you this morning. Uh, you're here on Memorial Day weekend morning, so that means either you really, really love sanctuary or you just don't have anything better to do this weekend. Either way, we're going to have a good time. Uh, my wife Mandy is here with me this morning, along with uh, our kids. Ethan is in the front row here, and Gabe and Isabella is sitting next to Mandy. And then Liam is in the class. He wanted to play with the toys. That's our youngest. He's two years old. And uh, we're just grateful to be out here. I'm supposed to get a, give a little update on Bloom, where I pastor out in Denver. Bloom, if you don't know, was started by uh, Pastor Ed's oldest son, Michael, and his wife, Lisa, some years ago. When we moved out there five years ago this September, which is crazy to think about. Time just goes pretty fast, doesn't it? Uh, when we moved out there, Bloom was about 50 or 60 or 70 so people that gathered uh, somewhat frequently. And uh, we just continued to invest ourselves in the community. And now these days we hover somewhere in the ballpark of around 400 or so people. Um, we have a couple services Sunday nights at four and six o'clock. And it's just a wonderful experience. Really cool community too. We just finished up, uh, like you all did, our Lent and Easter sequence. And uh, we're kind of a funny community. We like to try just, to just do things differently if we can. And so for Easter Sunday, as we were planning for that, you know, most churches would go, okay, so lots of people will come, you know, everybody's interested in going to church, so let's add services and really, like, beef this thing up, you know? And we were like, what if we walked the opposite direction and just made it really hard for people to come to church and just because, let's see what happens. And so we decided to have an Easter sunrise service at 6 a.m., only service of the day, just to see who would come. And I think we were thinking that maybe 70 or 80 or so people would show up. And, uh, and it was going to be a cool service, too. We're going to start in a park, light the Christ candle, sing some hymns, walk over to the church together, take the candle into the basement, light the rest of the candles there, and have an a cappella service. Really cool, intimate service planned. And several hundred people wound up showing up at the park and walked over with us to the building. And we were wall-to-wall people, standing room only on Easter Sunday morning at 6 a.m., which was awesome. So Bloom's cool. Thank you. Um, to those of you that have ever given to the cause at Bloom uh, or prayed for us or just kept us in your mind and heart, all of that just means so much to us. So thank you for all of that. Uh, it's one of those things, as the psalmist says, the Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes and that's the way that we feel about it. So it's good. Hey, let's take a minute before um, speaking of Easter. I have kind of an Eastery message for you this morning. Um, so let's take a minute, though, before uh, I start to preach uh, and let's just pray. And before we enter into that space, I want to just invite you to still yourself. Uh, my custom before I preach at Bloom is always to give us a minute or so just of quietness before I pray and then head into that. I think that our speech needs to emerge out of the silent reverence that we have in our hearts for God and for the reality of God. And so in this moment, let's just become aware of God. We're finite beings, and so that can be challenging for us. And I find that sometimes the best way to become aware of God is first to become aware of myself, my breathing, my embodiedness. I'm aware of the space around me, the little sounds, my neighbors next to me. And then I find that I begin to ascend up to an awareness of God comes to us in our finitude. So just still yourself.
Oh, God. You whom the highest heavens adore. Our hearts adore you. Even if we feel that we're far from you, our hearts really do adore you. You are the love behind all the loves of our lives. And Augustine said that he sought you in so many things that you had made, not really knowing that it was you behind all of those seeking. And that's us. In our longing for and our delight in goodness, in beauty and truth, justice, we long for you. We long for you in love and in the embrace of friends and family and new experiences that open up our imaginations and open up our minds and we listen to music that takes us into a transcendent space and we feel as though we've touched something of the eternal we're touching you. Our hearts are being awakened to our deep and uh, unerasable longing for you. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. For you are the source and the center, God, the beginning and the end. And we live and move and have our being in you. Like we wouldn't, it's not just that if you took away our breath, we would die and return to the dust. If you took away, like we exist, we are because of your continual act of self-donation. The I am that I am gives being to us, which means that there's never a moment in our lives where we're outside of your presence. And we sing these songs in church and pray these prayers, invoking your presence to come, asking you to come. But really, I think that you are asking us to come awake to you. For you are always and in all things and at all times. And so we pray, God, that as we open the scriptures for a few moments this morning and just talk about these matters and then begin to orient our hearts towards the sacrament, that we would find that all that's in us that is misaligned with your infinite beauty would begin to come aligned with it. And we find that our lives take on the beauty that is proper to you, your character, and your nature. Let your kingdom come and your will be done, we pray in these moments. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. In the book of Romans, chapter 14, and verse 17, Paul is in the middle of a bit of an argument, uh, an explanation, I suppose, with these Roman Christians uh, dealing with this pressing matter at hand in the Roman church. Uh, they were trying to figure out what was okay to eat and what was not okay to eat. Um, so is it okay for us to eat meat or should we only eat vegetables? And if we only eat vegetables, does that mean that we're better than the people who eat meat? And no, that seems very remote to us as 21st century Western Christians. We forget that Christianity was not sort of this religion that erupted out of nowhere, but it's an offshoot of Judaism. And in Judaism, like many ancient religions, these are very important issues, dietary restrictions. What can you eat? What can't you eat? And so Paul is in the middle of this pedantic kind of argument with these people. And then all of a sudden in Romans 14 and verse 17, it's like, he's sort of like, you feel him, he's kind of writing, there's some energy, and then all of a sudden it's like, boom, he steps back and he takes this wide-angle view. Instead of getting lost in the details, he looks at it from this totally new, much broader perspective, and he says these words. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. It's like, guys, you're looking, you're trying to figure out where God is at in all the details of what's okay to eat and what's not okay to eat. And can we do this? And can we do that? And how do we relate, relate to all these people? And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. And that's not where the kingdom of God is. 
The kingdom of God is, the reign of God is, wherever God is taking human lives and making them right, resituating them rightly within the world, that's the kingdom of God, righteousness. And wherever those same human lives, after having been set right, when they begin to find a sort of flourishing, a fullness of life that comes from God, peace, shalom, he says, that's the kingdom of God. And whenever those same human lives begin to exhibit that sort of effervescent, uh, indomitable joy that arises from that deep sense of well-being, joy, he says, that is the kingdom of God. Of God, it's not all of the little details of what's. It will impact those things, but it's not in those things. But it's in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And when you see those things emerging out of the human life, taking root in the human life, He says that's the kingdom of God. That's how you can spot Easter. That's how you spot resurrection. That's how you spot the new creation when human lives are coming right, when they're full of a flourishing that comes from God, and when there's joy that erupts. From the center of their souls, that is the kingdom of God. What I want to do this morning is think about one of those words, unpack it a little bit, and talk about what it looks like when we begin to come right with God. The word is righteousness. Can I hear you say righteousness? Righteousness. Now, in both Old and New Testament, so righteousness is this word that carries a lot of theological baggage for a lot of us. But righteousness is really just about both Old and New Testaments. The basic word picture is about something being set right within some kind of a context or some kind of a set, right? Okay. So like, here's an example for you. If you're working with your Microsoft Word, right, and you've written a bunch of words out and you've got several lines, if you hit write justify, what happens to all the words? They go like this, right? You need you to talk to me. They go like this, right? They align themselves with something. Righteousness is like that. Or another example, if you're uh, running on Turkey Mountain or something like that, you break your leg and you go to the doctor, the first thing the doctor does not do is bandage the leg up. What does the doctor do? He sets the bone. He sets it right. And so in both Old and New Testaments, righteousness is all about us being set right within a variety of contexts, both with God, within ourselves, with our neighbors, and with all of creation. What I want to do this morning is talk about what it looks like, I think, when the human life begins to be set right with God. I'll make this contention. You can put the first slide up on the screen, and then we'll talk about it for a bit. I think that when the human life gets set right with God... What that looks like is that we move from fear and a withholding of ourselves from God to faith and a giving of ourselves completely and totally and utterly to God. We move from fear and withholding to faith and a giving of ourselves to God. The father of faith in the scriptures is a guy by the name of Abraham. And if you remember the story of Abraham at all, Abraham and his wife Sarah were called by God in Genesis chapter 12 to be the solution to the problem that was created in Genesis chapter 3. When mankind defected from God, it breathed death into the world. And so God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to use you to bring blessing into the world, to fix what went wrong. And part of the way that I'm going to do that is that you guys are going to have a family. Abraham and Sarah think that this is a ludicrous idea. They're both old and Sarah was barren. But sure enough, in the course of time, God gave them a son, Isaac, and said that it's through this son, Isaac, that all of these promises, all of my good intentions for the world will come to bear through this boy. Isaac comes from this Hebrew word that means he laughs. And Sarah and Abraham laughed and laughed and laughed out of the delight of their hearts that God would do this miraculous thing for them. And then we come to this fork in the road, Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham, as he so often did in his life, 
said, here I am. He offers himself to God. And then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. Now, so many of us have read the story so many times that we're, we fail to just perceive the impact of it. God is laying in front of Abraham an absolutely impossible decision. On the one hand, the whole structure of Abraham's relationship with God depends on him being obedient to God. In the way that Adam and Eve weren't, Abraham, throughout the course of his life, has yielded himself over to this God, given himself to God, and it's in those acts of obedience that God has brought his blessing and his life into the world through Abraham. So if he disobeys God, then the whole thing falls apart. The plan of God is shattered, at least in Abraham's mind. And on the other hand, it's through this child Isaac that this blessing is supposed to come. And so if he kills Isaac, if he goes through with the thing that God has asked him to do, paradoxically, he'll be obeying God, but the plan will be shattered. And so he's damned if he does, and he's damned if he doesn't. He doesn't know what to do. And yet he offers himself to God. Verse 3, without saying anything about it, without fussing about it, Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We see something of Abraham's confidence coming out here. For he says, we will worship and then we will come back. But I don't know how this is going to work out. I'm determined to obey this God, to cast myself into this impossible situation. I'm going to go through with it and kill this boy, but we will worship and somehow we are coming back to you. Even though it seems like God is asking me to do this thing that will thwart the purposes of God, I believe, deep down, I believe that those purposes will not be thwarted. He has no proof of this, no rational certainty for it, but he gives himself to it. And so Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac is a perspicuous chap. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Abraham replied once again, he offers himself to God. Don't lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by the horns So he went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this and not withheld from me your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring... All the nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. 
Abraham is placed on the horns of a dilemma, an impossible situation. He has no proof that it's going to turn out one way and not another. He has no rational certainty that things are going to be a certain way. Then yet he has this promise from God and this word from God. And even though these things are totally contradictory to him, perfectly incompatible with one another, he casts himself on the impossible possibility that maybe, just maybe, there is some element of the faithfulness and the goodness of God there behind the paradox, behind the unknowing, behind the uncertainty. And he finds God there in that place of impossibility. When the scriptures open, we hear that human beings are made in the image and the likeness of God called to carry the divine image and the divine splendor, reflect the divine splendor into the world. And the church fathers, many of them asserted that as human beings, yes, God had made us in his image and in his likeness, but that image and that likeness were supposed to grow and grow in us. That as we continue to offer ourselves up to God, give ourselves in glad surrender to a God that we've never seen, cannot touch, taste, or smell, the invisible God. But as we continue to yield ourselves to that God, that the luminosity, the divine splendor of God would grow and grow in us. And actually, many of them asserted that Christ the Lord, even if we hadn't fallen, Christ the Lord still would have come and completed the divine image in human beings as we grew up in obedience and love and the knowledge of God. In order for God to accomplish this, He had to put us in a place where there was some element of obedience demanded of us. And so in order to do this, he he puts two trees in the Garden of Eden. The tree of knowledge, or the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge. Now that's interesting. He doesn't set before humanity the tree of life and the tree of death per se. Behind the choice of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there is death, but it's not death per se. And he doesn't set before them the tree of life and the tree of being mean to other people. Don't do that. It'll cause suffering. Please choose this. He doesn't do that. It's not the tree of life the tree of having sex with the wrong people at the wrong time under the wrong circumstances. It's not that. It's not the tree of life or the tree of nuclear armament. It's not any of that. The choice for humanity is between life and between knowing. Life and knowledge. Life and certitude. See, the way that we were created, we were not created to have some abstract set of ideas about God divorced from our relationship with God. We were made like children. The knowledge of good and evil. These original people were created to receive directly from the hand of God everything that they needed to live their lives. As they continued to give themselves in glad trust and surrender over to God, God would tell them, like we tell our children, don't do this. No, 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 don't do that. No, avoid, avoid that. No, please do this thing. This will bring you into life. That's the way that it was supposed to be. And what we did is we tried to abstract good and evil away from God because it's far easier to manage a system of ethics than it is to manage a relationship with a God that we have never seen before and cannot see. That is risky. That is precarious. To yield ourselves over in that way to that kind of a God, that's a dangerous proposition. But to have the knowledge of good and evil, certitude, divorced from God, that's far easier to manage. We might say this. You can put the next slide up. But the core temptation, it seems, for us human beings is to to substitute certitude for radical faith. 
the core temptation for we human beings is to substitute some kind of certitude for radical faith in God. Now, it seems to me that we who are people of faith do this in two primary ways. You can put the next slide up. The first place, I think that we do this on the level of our dogma, our doctrine, our beliefs about God. We take our beliefs and our convictions about this God that we've come into relationship with, and we elevate them to the level of some kind of certitude, forgetting that our beliefs are not certainties. They're not knowings. They are beliefs. When we gather together like we did not too long ago, what we don't say, like the thing that we did before I preached this morning, what we don't say is we have absolutely indisputable proof that there is one God, the Father Almighty. We don't say that. We don't say that we have concluded and proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that there is one Lord Jesus Christ. We don't say that we have absolutely indisputable visual evidence that there is this thing called the Holy Spirit. We don't say that. Or we can't prove the forgiveness of sins. We don't say that. When we get together, what do we say? We don't say we have certainty. We say we believe. We say we believe. We believe, we give ourselves over to this. We can't see this. We can't prove it. We can't prove any of this stuff. We can't prove that there's one God. We can't prove that he's triune. We can't prove that anything that Jesus did, this Jewish man who was murdered, we can't prove that that does something for us. When we get together and we celebrate the sacrament here, you can't stick this under a microscope and discern, oh yes, okay, of course. That's definitely the body of the Lord. We don't do that. We accept it as faith. It's faith. It's a leap into the void. It cannot be proven. We can't rationalize our way into it. We have to jump into it. And once we jump into it, once we give ourselves over to it, we begin to find that a new orientation steals into our hearts. We know it in a way that we could not have known it before. We yield ourselves over to it. We jump. We take the leap like Abraham did. We cannot prove these things. We can't stick this music stand or this Bible or these chairs or your lives under a microscope and discern that behind them somehow there really is a benevolent triune presence who is drawing all things into his infinite life and goodness. We can't prove it, but we believe it. But whenever we try to substitute our certainty for some kind of radical faith in God, what we always do is we breathe death into our own lives and the lives of other people. I remember when I went to seminary seven years ago, I was so excited to go, uh, just really interested in going to a place where we got together, where like a whole bunch of people got together and talked about God. Like that just seemed interesting to me. We're going to go and talk about God, exchange ideas, let our minds be sharpened and expanded by the reality of this God who is so much bigger than all of our minds and bigger than all of our concepts. I was so inspired by that. And I wasn't there for very long before I realized that there's whole like groups of people who are dogged in their insistence that no, you can't, no, we can't talk about God like that. We can't say exactly that about God. Oh, wait, 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 wait. You don't believe exactly this about God? Well, you're beyond the pale. And so what we do is we use these doctrines, these dogmas to divide up Christianity, to make ourselves feel better. Well, we have the right beliefs. Well, we have the right doctrines and dogmas about God. And it breathes death every time. The division and the arrogance that steal into our imaginations, our minds and our hearts because of that, all of it. His death. I remember sitting with a guy one time, this friend of mine, we were working on this ministry thing together and we were driving out to the, this location where we were doing this deal. And we were having this conversation about uh, what we believe and how it relates to the, the truth itself. You know? And I remember saying to him, you know, I was like, you know, the stuff that's written in these theology books that we have, I go, this stuff isn't the truth, but you get that, right? And he was 
absolutely adamant in his, in his insistence. No, this is, the, this is the truth. What's written in these theology books is the truth. I go, no, it's not the truth. It's a feeble human attempt to apprehend the truth. It's lines, squiggly lines and symbols by which we're trying to give expression to the ineffable mystery that lies above and beyond all of us. It's a gesture to the truth. At most, it's a launching pad into the truth, but it's not the truth itself. The truth is bigger than any of our minds can conceive. As Augustine said, if you can comprehend it, it is not God. And yet we take our comprehension, our ideas about God, and we use them like they're some kind of absolute hardcore fact. And whenever we do that, we breathe death. I remember several years ago when the pastor up in Grand Rapids, Rob Bell, released his book, Love Wins. This book, the subtitle was Heaven, Hell, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every human person that's ever lived or something like that. And in the book, Rob conjectures, as plenty of Christians and theologians have done down through the ages, that maybe, just maybe, the love of God is a big enough thing to crack through the hardness of every human heart and welcome every human being into the eternal kingdom of God. It's a bracing and incredibly hopeful suggestion. And so Rob releases the book and instantaneously the evangelical community goes bonkers over this guy, John Piper, another famous pastor up in the Twin Cities, just sort of a word to the wise, like if you can avoid it, don't become a famous pastor. It's like it's just a really weird situation. And so John Piper, he tweets out, farewell, Rob Bell. Like, Rob, you can't suggest that. We can't have that conversation. You can't talk about those things. You're beyond the pale. And what do we do? We create some new little closed quarter, some new group of people. No, no, no. We have the right stuff and we feel good. We feel justified. We feel put in the right with God because our ideas about God are the right ideas. It's the wrong way to live. And I'm not saying that we let our heads turn to mush either. I think that when you begin to approach faith, when you approach belief in this way, it allows you to at once be firm in your convictions and yet open-handed with them. When the book came out, the Love Wins book came out, I thought, I disagree, Rob, with this. And I think I can make a pretty good case against a lot of what you're proposing here. But I could be wrong about that. And if I'm wrong, and you're right, (laughs) how great would that be if everybody gets in? That'd be great. And I don't have some, like, internal visceral reaction to know, no, only a few of us can get in. Well, that's an insane proposition. I could be wrong. This is faith. I'm reading, like all of us are, I'm reading this book that is a collection of poetry and song and symbol and story and narrative and letters, and we're trying to, we're trying to come up with some clear idea of what God is doing, but all of it, as Paul says, we see through a glass, but darkly. So I think that when we see ourselves as flinging ourselves into the infinite mystery, the impossibility of God, it allows us at once to hold our beliefs firmly and yet be open-handed. We don't say we know when we gather. We say we believe we believe and so it operates on the level of dogma secondly i think it operates on the level you can put the next slide up on direction for our lives direction for our lives evangelicals and charismatics are absolutely the worst at this in the history of christianity nobody has sweat more about trying to figure out god's specific plan for your life 
than the good people of the last hundred years or so in the United States. We just don't do, do that in the history of Christianity. And so charismatics, we're always, God is talking to us, and so we have to try to figure out what God is saying. And then once we figure it out, then we do it. And once we do it, then we feel good because we've made the right decision. Or if you're more broadly evangelical, you believe that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and you just pray hard enough, then you'll intuitively, you know, in some clairvoyant kind of way, you'll know what God is saying, and you'll make the right decision. So most of our lives are spent in this very anxious sort of, I don't know what the next step is supposed to be, but I have to make a next step pretty soon. God, 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 God
Captain Crunch, Tutti Fruities, Wheaties. I don't have whatever you want. It's totally fine. And if I have some opinion about what you're going to eat, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell you to stop eating that or do eat this thing. I'm perfectly capable of it. And God is perfectly capable of talking to us if he wants to talk to us about the specific direction for our lives. So I was like, you do whatever you want to do. If you want to go to Indianapolis and earn twice as much money in your dream job, go and do it. Money is awesome. And if you don't want to do that, if it's really not in your heart to do that, you just love your friends, you love the mountains, and your job in Denver is okay, and that's what you want to do, friends are cool. Stay in Denver. Or if you don't want to do either of those things, you want to move to Kazakhstan, and like, I don't know, go do that. It's fine. But don't feel good or bad about yourself because you're getting it just right in your life. Cast yourself into your life. Live your life. Give yourself over to God and lose all of that other stuff. Trust that it's going to be okay. That there really is a presence underneath your life that's supporting and sustaining you no matter what decision you make. As the psalmist said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? He said, if I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths of hell, you're there. We talk about not making the right decisions with your life. It's like I just ran my life into the gutter completely and you were there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light, the night become, uh, the light become night around me. He says, even the darkness won't be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. Where are you going to go from the presence of God? Where are you going to go from the goodness and the love of God? Where are you going to go from the supervening hand of God on your life? We're not put right with God because we've made the right decisions or because we believe the right things. We're put right with God because we've cast ourselves on the possible possibility that maybe, just maybe, behind it all, there is a God. And he does love us and he is for us. The result of all of this, the next slide, I think, is that we begin to live simply, simply, and authentically and wholeheartedly before God and other people because we're no longer trying to prove ourselves to others and we're not trying to prove ourselves to God. We're just living innocently with wonder like children. And not too long ago, Mandy and I were in uh, Chicago. The seminary invited me to come back and I led this high school uh, uh, conference, uh, really fun, had a great time. And I met up with an old friend of ours, Mandy and I both did. And uh, this guy's about 10 years older than me. And so when I was in seminary, he was the chaplain at Trinity. And I got to know him. And it was something of a, like a, some cross between a mentor and a friend and just one of those wonderful people that you have that's a little bit further down the road than you and helps kind of point the way for you. Just love my relationship with this guy. And we've been, we've sort of kept in touch a little bit over the years since I left seminary. But whenever we see each other, it's always, it's one of those relationships where you just sort of lock right back in with each other. And so we got together and did breakfast. And I knew that three years earlier, he had moved his family into the city of Chicago to do this sort of intentional living thing with some other families to start a church kind of in this house that they were in together. Then do some other really interesting ministry in the city. And I hadn't heard how things were going over the last few years. So it was a chance to catch up. And I said to him, we got together. I go, okay, so bro, I haven't heard from you in like forever. What is going on with your life? And he goes, he starts in and I can tell instantly that there's some measure of anxiety in what he's saying. He goes, he goes, well, I just, you know, I don't know. Things are going good. I don't really know what God is doing. 
with us, though. I go, okay, well, so what's happening? He goes, well, you know, we were down here doing this church thing, and we were running out of money really fast, and I was so freaked out, you know, thinking that I've just, like, hauled my family to the brink of annihilation and my sort of ideological delusions of grandeur or whatever. But then God came through, and I got a job. I said, that's sweet. What's your job? He goes, I'm working for a software company. And I go, that's kind of crazy. Like, really? He goes, yeah. And he'd been in ministry all of his life. So he goes, yeah, I'm working for this software company and I'm doing this really interesting stuff. They got me traveling all over. I'm making pretty good money doing it. But I don't really know what God has for me in this. And so I'm seeking the kingdom of God there. And I'm just trying to live faithfully as a bivocational pastor and just trying to work out what vocational holiness looks like. And he's like dropping all these terms on me. And we do this in Christianity, you know, and I think I knew this heading into this conversation, but all of a sudden it stood out in sharp relief that we have this habit as people of faith of taking these because we feel all this anxiety about our lives. We feel all this uncertainty about what I'm doing with my life and the decisions I've made and who I am and what I believe and all this business. And so what we do is we take these terms or these words or these phrases that have been vetted somewhere else and then we put them on ourselves because it makes us feel good. So if I am working for a church that's kind of struggling and I also have a part-time job, that's embarrassing. But if I can call myself a bivocational pastor, because somebody out there talked about this and they vetted it and that's like an acceptable term. So if I can put that on myself, oh, I'm a bivocational pastor. See, I just like feel good in front of you now. And if I have a job at a software company and I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable about it, I don't really want to talk about it with my friends when they ask me like, what is, what's going on with your life? But if I can tell them, I'm working out what it means to live in a vocationally holy way in this job. Oh, now that feels so. Goodness, he's got all of this anxiety, vocational holiness, seeking the kingdom of God, all of this business. And I go, you know, you're a bit older than me and a little bit wiser than me and all that. So you just take this with a grain of salt. I said, but if I was you, if I was in your situation, I would be really strongly tempted. Like when people ask me what I was doing with my life, I would be strongly tempted to tell them, I'm working for a software company and it's cool and I like it and it makes pretty good money. <laughs> and just, just leave it there. And I said, but if you felt the need, cause you like, if you felt pressure to say any more than that, but you don't have to, you could just tell them that you're working for a software company and you know, that's perfectly Okay. It'd be okay if you were working for a software company or if you were working at Starbucks or if you were, I don't know, if you went and worked for the circus. Like, it's all fine. Okay? It's all, it's all fine. So, but if you feel any pressure to say anything more than that, and again, you, you don't have to, what you can tell them is that you're still doing that work with that church that you originally came down to the city to help out with. And it's cool and you like it. And the people are nice. And you think that you'll stay there for a while because it's fun. And then you can leave it there and it's totally fine. But if, and again, you don't have to, but if, if you do feel the need to say more about your life, you can tell them that you're still married to your wife who you love and that your kids are so wonderful and you love them and they're interesting and they kind of look like you and that makes you laugh. <laughs> and then if you want you can be done talking and you don't have to say any more about your life than that. And you don't have to put all of these other terms. You don't have to say you're seeking the kingdom of God. You don't have to say that. And you don't have to say you're trying to figure out what vocational holiness looks. You don't have to say that. And you don't have to say that you're a bivocational anything. 
just tell them that your name is David and God loves you and you're living life the best way that you know how and it's okay. Paul in Romans says that in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed. A righteousness from God, he says, that is by faith from first to last. As it is written, the just, those that have been set right with God are those who live by faith. They cast themselves upon God. And God is not anything that we can wrap our minds around or our language around or get some kind of rational. That's not what God is. You ever notice in the scriptures, as often as they talk about God, the psalmists in particular will do this. They'll say that clouds and thick darkness surround him. So that's what we're dealing with. Clouds and thick darkness. Some kind of rational certitude, not some kind of definite form that we can put our minds around. It's nothing like that. It's we cast ourselves upon this God and we trust that somehow he's there behind it all. I ran into this prayer and I'll close with this by a guy by the name of Luis Espinal. You can put the last slide up. He's a Bolivian priest who was murdered some years ago and he says this. He said, train us, Lord, to fling ourselves upon the impossible. For behind the impossible is your grace and your presence. We cannot fall into emptiness. The future is an enigma. Our road is covered by mist. But we want to go on giving ourselves. Because you continue hoping amid the night and weeping tears through a thousand human eyes. You and I cannot fall into emptiness. Take the leap. God is there. Amen.